0: I came into this world anxious to uncover the meaning of things, my soul desirous to be at the origin of the world. And here I am, an object, among other objects, locked in this suffocating reification. I appealed to the other so that his liberating gaze, gliding over my body, suddenly smoothed of rough edges, would give me back the lightness of being I thought I had lost, and taking me out of the world. Help me to embrace the void.
1: The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning, it's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense, and eventually, you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're gonna be okay. Face the void.
0: Call it a one way vacation to the void. Warning.
1: This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people.
0: Welcome, friends, to episode 161 of Embrace the Void, where everything you're hearing is already years out of date. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are discussing the role of critical race theory in diversity training. So, let's walk the walk.
1: All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something...
0: My guest this week is Casey Peterson, uh, research and development electrical engineer at Sandina, uh, sorry, Sandia, excuse me, National Laboratories, who took issue with the critical race theory based diversity training at the national labs. Casey, would you like to say hi to the void?
1: Hello, everyone. And thank you, Aaron, for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: I'm happy to have you on. You know, folks who listen to the show for a while will know that I really do try to have these conversations with people who I think I fairly strongly disagree with um, in ways that are uh, constructive and useful for everyone um, who is listening. Do you want to maybe start by giving your listeners a sense of where you're coming from personally and politically some and how you engage with these issues?
1: Sure. I would say that um, I was raised in a mostly conservative home and i come from a pretty moderate conservative viewpoint on these subjects and when these things ideas of critical race theory were presented to us at our place of work i found them to be very extreme and i think uh, i believe that my video reflects that i took a very moderate approach in making the case for why these things do not belong in uh, a national laboratory a federally funded national laboratory and why it is divisive um, to the workforce not only based on the evidence that was at hand but based on the continued evidence that continued to unfold after i went public with the video that we will discuss here in just a bit
0: Okay, that's that's great. And just for folks who are, I guess, coming to this conversation, I haven't listened to the show before, and are uh, from your side of the aisle, as it were. I will be happy to explicitly say that I am of the the social justice persuasion. I am not. I'm technically an analytic philosopher and not a critical theorist, but I am currently doing a PhD in education, which involves quite a bit of critical theory that I'm reading. So I'm. I'm sympathetic to various things that are going on in critical theory and critical race theory so I think I think it's fair to say you and I are on on the opposite side of most of all of this. Um, Though I don't think that may necessarily be true for the diversity stuff. So let me just say also, I I watched your video and I think folks should go watch the video since we're going to be referencing it heavily here. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, And I really do genuinely think it's unfortunate that your first or your most significant encounter with these theories is in the form of this kind of diversity training. And it sounds like it was not maybe particularly well managed possibly. Um, I'm curious, initially, do you feel like you found anything of value in your exploration of these materials and in these trainings?
1: So I think there's always a lot of value, even hearing uh, any any opinions, especially ones that you're strongly opposed to. And these diversity trainings, it, just because I went to diversity training and I'm criticizing part of it, um, it is a large part of it because a lot of these trainings and these, these conferences that we had over Skype and things like that were prefaced on critical race theory videos, but then much of the content inside of there, there was people that had a lot of good things to say inside of these diversity trainings that were not, I wouldn't even classify as critical race theory. There's uh, a lot of good diversity training that you can do outside of critical race theory. But as far as the critical race theory goes, I would say the main value that I got from that is taking a deep dive into how, I guess, how prevalent this is throughout so much of our society now. And I was unaware of how widespread it was. And then really um, uh, increasing my knowledge on critical race theory and the people pushing it and why it's destructive. I I probably (laughs) knew about 20% of what I know now before, before I started this whole process.
0: Okay, great. So I think this is valuable because I and others, I think, often have trouble getting a sense of what the scope of the criticism or the concern is in these kinds of situations. Like, are you saying that all diversity training is bad or are you saying that diversity training based on critical race theory is bad? Are you saying that both diversity training, broadly speaking, and critical race theory are very bad? So do you want to maybe just say real clear where your major concerns are in that way?
1: yes i think diversity training can be absolutely great and diversity in organizations is good everybody should feel extremely comfortable coming to work and being themselves at work And should not feel like they're being discriminated against for uh, based on things such as gender and race. I think critical race theory does the exact opposite of that. We have a lot of people feeling, despite whatever the intentions are, many people are feeling that critical race theory is racial discrimination, and it's very demeaning, demoralizing, and it's very divisive for a workforce. So I think that you can have a lot of extremely good training done and there is a lot of extremely good training done in organizations but when you bring critical race theory into it i think critical race theory is destructive and it has no place in any workplace in the united states i think it's destructive to any workplace and it has no place in our schools and i think that uh, even the most recent executive order by the administration is a fantastic representation of what critical race theory is and why it's destructive they define it extremely clearly in there and whoever wrote that deserves a lot of praise because i thought that was written extremely well the um Executive Order Eliminating Critical Race Theory.
0: Okay, good. So I definitely want to talk about that executive order, but I want to get a little clear on our terms a little bit here. Some first, and it sounds like you think that they gave a pretty good account of it. So it sounds like your concern is primarily with uh, critical race theory as a theory, and the and then the implications that you feel like it has uh, in practice, not just in the form of diversity training, but in in broader kinds of concerns. So I definitely want to work through some of those things before we dive into those details. Though I also there's one more piece of like table setting that I think was valuable. There's often a lot of talk around these issues having to do with it, you know, cancel culture or people feeling afraid to stand up. You have Play, you know, put out a video uh, that is very critical of your employment. And I'm curious, have you received substantial repercussions as a result of your video?
1: Yes, I would say substantial. Um, no, it could obviously be a lot worse. I thus far have not um, been fired from my place of work. They are working through some um, a ethics review and reviews on security clearances for myself. And that is still ongoing and hopefully will be summed up here in the next couple of weeks or a month. It's going on longer than expected. As far as other repercussions, I guess the, the normal what you would expect, everybody calling you a racist and a sexist mm-hmm. and everything else, every other name in the, in the book. And then other than your, you know, unsubstantiated threats and things like that, there, there's really no repercussions, I would say, that, that surprised me from coming out with, uh, against critical race theory.
0: Okay. So, I mean, that might at least be a a positive thing in the sense that if people are concerned that anyone who speaks out about this is immediately fired or something, that sounds like... (laughs) There are people
1: that certainly wanted to immediately fire me. If I was in a private workplace, I would have definitely been fired without a doubt if I was pushing back on this at, uh, say, a place like Facebook. The fact that I am in the federal Hmm. government, I deserve... uh, I benefit from certain extra protections, and that's why I could very confidently come out and speak against this and even though I knew that like this really does mess up mess up my career progression guaranteed my proger- career progression at Sandia National Laboratories will be vastly limited just based on the promotions process that's in place and even if 50% of the people strongly disagree with me or even if it was 25% of the people is going to make it extremely hard to advance professionally so I was aware of what could possibly happen going into that and if I had mm-hmm. been at a private private uh, company, I would have done the exact same thing if our private company had been as important to national security as Sandia National Laboratories was. It was not a fact. Um, me putting out this video, essentially Sandia National Laboratories for background is uh Sandia National mm-hmm. Laboratories is a national research and development laboratory. We work on some of the nation's most difficult and sensitive problems. Uh, Sandia employs over 16,000 employees and contractors, I believe currently, at least that's how many the uh email I sent out, that's how many employees and contractors it went out to with sandia.gov mm. emails. And the it wasn't a fact of me thinking that I needed to do this or wanted to do this. Uh, I felt morally obligated to do this because I saw how destructive it was and how immoral it was to continue pushing the narratives that were being pushed at our place of work. So I would have done the exact so this, same. This thing. This is a had strong
0: for... moral project for you, you would say. Yes, that you're you're, you're heavily morally committed to. Do you, do you? I mean, I'm curious. Do you see it as a kind of like? Culture war, in an unironic sense, that there is a very much important conflict at play for the heart of our culture.
1: Of course, of course, critical race theory. If you if you dig down into the culture wars, because culture wars are going on at all times in history. At all times, you're always there's always a culture war. But I would certain, certainly certainly sure. say critical race theory is at the forefront of that culture war today, especially after the uh, death of George Floyd and with the backdrop of the elections coming up. So culture war is front and okay. center with the, or sorry, critical race theory is front and center with the culture war. And when we're referencing critical yeah. race theory, obviously this refers to a lot of critical theory and stuff because it also branches over into. Intersectionality and affirmative action in the workplace, both by race and by gender, but kind of critical race theory just got slapped on it as the general label. So we're kind of misusing that term, but I think it's uh, close enough for our
0: conversation. <laughs> sure, or critical theory or critical studies, I think yes. are terms that we've talked about on the show previously. Now, you you mentioned about your um, promotions, and I just want to, for fairness, say that is a, that is an untestable, unfalsifiable claim for the most part. I would say, in the sense that. You know we can't know here and now what the effects will actually be for your career in that like and certainly reasonable that i asked you do you, have you experienced substantial repercussions if you to talk about you know potential substantial future repercussions but i think something we can agree on that you, that you got at there which is you as a federal employee have different protections than employees in the private sector and a lot of folks on the left who've been very critical of sort of the commodifying of of wokeness in capitalist culture have argued Argue that the solution here is not get rid of critical race theory, but instead strengthen employer pr- employee protections against being fired, you know, sort of summarily in these, you know, so sort of rollbacks on right to work kinds of um, systems. What do you think about that as a as a way to address this problem?
1: So I think that will never address the the issue. And I'm going to push back on you a little bit because you say, I'm not going to suffer repercussions um, for, for promotions and things. And yes, you could say, I couldn't prove that. But the fact is, I've been contacted by many individuals in Sandia who have spoken out against this to their managers and been kind of the, um, the the piece of sand in the the will or whatever you want to call it, that is pushing back against these things. And um, this might be somewhere we disagree with the uh, culture. But if somebody is in management, um, and this is I'll, I'll just go ahead and use our company if someone's in a management or company and they are of a conservative a libertarian or a a political mindset and somebody comes up and strongly disagrees with them politically and starts pushing let's just say critical race theory or other strong political views that they're doing it within policy when they come up for, for promotion it's a lot um, It's a lot more common in the culture for these ideas to say, I'm going to separate their ideas from their ethic and judge them solely based on their performance. But what we're seeing— How do you know that? Just based on the feedback from individuals that have gone through the same thing and told me what to expect moving forward. Would you, would you forward, call that
0: anecdotal evidence, though?
1: Yeah, certainly it's anecdotal, right? Because if I if this this is something that we go back and forth all day, anecdotal evidence is garbage, and we, we could go back and forth on this subject. So I'll just give you the. Um, oh, I'm,
0: I mean, I don't I don't undervalue anecdotal evidence. I just know that you are very critical of the use of anecdotal evidence. Yes, I just anecdotal to evidence. Highlight in the, that this is that this is a clear example of anecdotal evidence. It yes, seems
1: like definitely, and anecdotal okay. evidence in the absence of data to support that it, it can kind of be dismissed outright. So when I'm saying this, this is this is almost a useless part of the conversation because I I can't back it up with exact data but i'll I'll just tell you the perception that people might watch out for and a lot of um, people on my side would agree with this there's a reason people were so absolutely terrified to speak out about this and even people were setting up you know um private emails through encrypted email and it's setting up a you know anonymous name under that email and then emailing me and not only that it's doing two-factor authentication getting a uh a universally unique identifier and sending it to me and having the, me send it to them through another encrypted method just to verify that they were sending it to the right person before they even talked to me and then we even had a okay. couple of individuals delete their email after this this is a culture that has been created around but speaking of course, out of course against this
0: that. is a this, right but of course this could be a culture created by a potential overreaction and overconcern to this material. I'm not saying that it necessarily is. I'm saying the objection here would be pointing to people engaging in conspiracy theory-minded behavior doesn't necessarily prove that there's a conspiracy that that is actually enacted against them. Correct. So let me, let me just ask you, though, Just I just want to get your thought on that other part of my uh, question, which was, shouldn't we, I mean, like, couldn't it be the case that the the major issue here is not... Ju- you know, maybe not just, and we'll talk about critical race theory, but not just critical race theory, but the fact that employees are generally in such a precarious position where they can be fired without cause, and that that should be something that we should all be in favor of addressing as a way to protect from all sorts of uh, unjust firings, including based on you know speaking truth to power.
1: Uh, possibly, you get into dicey territory there when you start limiting the the powers in private private companies um, when you start. Obviously I'm I'm get very leery about that, but I think it's a very small problem in comparison to critical race theory um, being pushed in a place of work. I do not think critical race theory is uniting in any way, and I don't think it's beneficial in any way. I think it's based on vastly based on lies and uh, okay. un, mm-hmm. you have a lot of evidence that the minute you dig into it, it can't withstand the least bit of scrutiny. So if if the claims behind critical race um, theory were were true, then obviously a lot of the actions taken by critical race theorists um, and I I kind of use that umbrella about a lot of actions taken by those that are frustrated with the current state of the United States and a lot of even writing and looting things like that could be considered even justified but the fact is it is not based based on fact and does not withstand scrutiny it's uh... all right that's
0: that's perfect segue then because i want to talk about your critiques of critical race theory i think we've we've done all right we've done fine on i think covering the the cancel culture side of this but i, I really do want to get into the theory because your you spend a lot of time in your video trying to uh, accuse critical race theorists of lying and using misinformation in order to push their arguments um and i think I think that's a pretty it's a I mean like it's probably true that there are some indiv- I mean it's almost certainly true that somewhere within the critical race theory movement there are bad actors. But it seems like a it seems false to say that that represents critical race theory uh, writ large. And so uh, let's dive into some of your claims here. You push back pretty heavily in the video on narratives around systemic racism and white privilege. Those are two things that seem to me to be fairly uncontroversial in the sense that they exist and can be observed. Are you are you arguing that they don't exist or are you arguing that they are it exists, but they are, their effects are greatly exaggerated?
1: Um, so we'll take on systemic racism first. I think systemic racism, sure. uh, any existence of systemic racism in 2020 is completely neg- negligible and almost impossible to prove if it does exist. It, um, out of all the things that I dug into all the strongest claims, starting with the strongest claims and moving my way down it did not withstand any scrutiny as far as white privilege goes i did a video on that kind of following it's um uh, my primary my most recent video about a week ago that i dug into white privilege and even dug into one of the lists from arizona state university there's 50 privileges on that list and if all mm-hmm. of them were true i would say oh wow white privilege is pretty uh, substantial right it, it could explain a lot of disparities in the united states but Um, The vast amount of those claims were not were not true. And it came down to 13 different privileges that I that I even left on the list that none of them were hard hitting to say that those are a large explanation for disparities in the United States. Those all fell under the category of majority privilege. And you can okay. point out so many mm-hmm. other privileges that explain disparities in the United States much more strongly than white privilege. Racial privilege, um, you have all sorts of racial privilege, and you, there's even an argument to be made that black privilege, if you want to just look at only racial privileges, that black privilege um, has benefits currently that could be, can, could be argued are greater than white privilege. But again, any privilege, this racial okay. privilege pales in comparison when you bring up things like two-parent privilege, genetic privilege, privilege of being wealthy in the United States or, or being middle class in the United States, having more money. There's so many more things uh, that contribute to your outcomes, including your culture, personal decisions, you, where you grow up geographically so it's a little dishonest to say that white privilege is the main contributor to these disparate, any main contributor to these disparities in the United States that we see today.
0: Okay. So let's, I think, let's try to get at an issue, a question of white privilege by focusing on systemic racism, because it seems to me that if systemic racism is a pervasive problem, then by extension, white privilege exists merely by the existence of a systemic racism. Yes. So let's, let's focus in on the systemic racism side, because I think there are more uh, uncontroversial or concrete examples of systemic racism that we can deal with here now uh, we haven't we haven't actually technically I think defined critical race theory or critical studies. I think f- just to give a, a, a neutral definition here, right I think these are fields that study the relationships of power and domination and liberation within societies, the way that social classes are um, per, you know persist the way that racial inequality persists is that we say that's fair as a sort of broad definition of these studies.
1: Yeah, it's uh, that
0: I guess that's fair
1: enough. Um obviously if I give a definition it's uh strongly based on the idea that these systems are built by white people for white people and are um are perpetuated by white people to um to secure their power as far as critical race theory goes,
0: that is a very core tenet of critical race theory. Right, so we'd want to be careful there, right, because the systemic analysis is specifically arguing there doesn't need to be like explicitly a group of white, a cabal of white individuals trying to cause these systems to persist, that the systems can often persist without explicit racism going on amongst the individuals involved.
1: Sure, and that's kind of the claim of it, that unintentionally, or a lot of it's unconscious or unintentionally maybe, that it just happens to be that way, and we don't even recognize mm-hmm. the own the, our own white supremacy in these systems that we've built up and that's like kind of core part Mm -hmm. of the claims of critical
0: race theory or I guess critical theories in general talking about disparities so before I try to put forward a couple of examples of what seemed to me empirical evidence for critical race theory, I'm curious uh, are there are are, you know could you give me a sense of like what you think would be uncontroversial evidence for the existence of critic of, of systemic racism Uncontrovertible evidence of systemic racism, or, 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 let me let me ask it this way: Is can you do you have a clear sense of what would falsify your belief that systemic racism is not a substantial problem in the country? So,
1: I think that essentially the reason that systemic racism is not a large problem in the United States is you have to take the claims. Um, as presented by these uh, proponents of critical race theory and a lot of these people that have put together, you know, either videos or articles talking about it, and they will present a lot of times their absolute strongest claims for them. And I would take the claims that I believe to be the strongest and most surprising to me and go through those one by one. And as you dig through them, uh, even claims of saying uh, something as simple as, uh, you are fifty percent more likely to get a callback from an employer if you have a white white sounding name versus a black sounding name. Now that's a, an astonishing um, mm-hmm. claim. So if that's true, that seems like pretty clear systemic racism. And that is a study that is quoted again and again for uh, in these sources that claim critical race theory. Uh, claim that systemic racism exists in the United States. But when you dig into it, you find it's much more nuanced than that. And there's many, many studies um, that are completely either debunking that or conflicting with it, showing a much smaller amount of, of systemic racism if it, um, or discrimination based on names. And there's quite a few conflicting studies on that. So when you actually dig into these studies, you find out that the claim is definitely vastly overblown if it exists at all. And then you can even dig okay. into something as simple as banking like systemic racism in banking and
0: yeah i actually want to talk about banking <laughs> oh well fantastic
1: um, let's get into uh, yes yeah. and, and specifically, racism specifically and banking and ai first
0: so so let me ask you about this um you you and i are both interested in ai i, I gather from our discussions prior there, one, one example that I, I often come across and point to when I'm discussing these issues in my AI ethics class or in um, you know critical theory classes is the way that algorithms can be racially biased and, engage, and, and effectively reproduce uh, systemic racism in the form of a, a seemingly objective algorithmic system. And a, a major example of this would be loan or mortgage algorithms. I'm curious, do you, Would you acknowledge that these kinds of algorithms that currently exist in the world pose a substantial risk of systemic racism and that there is at least some evidence that their application in the world is reinforcing systemic inequality in this way?
1: Um, So I would strongly disagree with that. I think AI obviously poses a big threat to the United States for different reasons. Uh, as far as our social media goes and who's in control of that AI and what the op- uh, algorithms are being optimized for. And obviously we're talking about AI as the uh, low level of AI that, that we have. And the low level of AI is just not the artificial intelligence that continues to teach itself and get stronger and make jumps in reasoning. So we're just talking about low level AI uh, in banking. The data does not. Oh no, support... I'm talking about learning
0: AI. What's that? I'm talking about machine learning. I'm talking about so machine sophisticated learning AI is not the AI go with fashion AIs. Today,
1: When they talk about machine learning AI, it's very very limited. Um, you you get in kind of conspiracy land or I guess uh, apocalyptic land when you talk about the AI that is the golden standard that countries are rushing towards, the type of AI that they put in charge of. You know determining military tactics and maneuvers and stuff the ai we have currently yes it is learning yes it grows and um it 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 does things that we don't expect but it's in a very limited scope it is certainly not in the it does not reach the promise of like true uh i guess sentient ai but ai of course not (laughs) um in your context of like social media and stuff is extremely damaging and when we talk about uh, in banking, we do not see the disparities in banking that we that we want to, uh, we don't see the disparities that are claimed in banking when we actually dig into the data.
0: But I mean, what, if, what about, for example, there was a study recently that found that 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 human bias has essentially shifted to algorithmic bias, and that you find um, that uh, blacks and Latinos are uh, frequently charged, consistently charged higher interest rates, even through the use of AI when they go through these mortgages. And there's like there's plenty of like reasonable explanations, like not reasonable in the sense of good, but at least like you can explain why the history of redlining and the history of various. Uh, racist lending practices in this country that are very well documented um, would create a, a, a corrupt data set that would then make it very difficult to train a lending algorithm without it in turn also carrying on those biases. So we would see that in the data, in the outcomes.
1: And so we do. We have the data. So yeah, let let I want to dig into that just a little bit because it's much more nuanced. Because I've I've dug, obviously dug into these same studies because that's a very bold claim saying that you know you have you have systemic racism in banking. That's a very big deal for the United States, and it d- a lot of times determines your success and whether you can get a home or not in the United States, whether you can actually live out the American dream in the United States. So redlining was a practice that was outline uh, that was outlawed as early as. The as 1968 through the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Additionally, um, discrimination in banking was um, pushed out further in, in law, entrenched in law even more or pushed out of law even more, saying uh, through the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act of 1975 and again uh, the Community Reinvestment Act of 2011. And there was a study conducted in 1992, a researchers at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston collected information on some 30 plus variables related to lending decisions. And they found that virtually all differences in denial rates were explainable by those variables. And again, a 1997 reanalysis of that research found that black-owned banks were lending to white-owned businesses at higher rates than they were lending to black-owned businesses, indicating that those same variables were in play and not racism. Uh, Additionally, we see that Asians receive, um, that the Asians denial rate is nearly half that of white
0: Americans. And you can't say okay, that. Okay. So here's here's a problem here. I, I think, and I want to I want to just I want to make this make sure this is going to be like a dialogue because I I know that yes. you have a lot of statistics to back up your views as well. But I want to point to a problem here, right? I pointed to a specific case of algorithmic bias within banking, which I think there is substantial data that suggests that algorithmic bias exists in banking. It seems like what you are now doing is pointing to other pieces of data that show that other parts of bias in banking have improved over the years. I don't think anybody is arguing that by that like there's been zero improvement in bias over the years. I think the question is whether there is still substantial bias anywhere in the system and it seems like there are still examples of that that are not undercut by the examples you were putting forward. I also want to point out you mentioned that redlining was out, you know, outlawed in the 60s, right? That means there are people still living in their houses who bought those houses under redlining, right? Like there are people still alive today yes. who have been affected in their lives. So it's, it seems hard to say that the effects of these things are gone when living individuals suffered from them and their descendants are very clearly also still suffering from them given the economic effects of redlining and, I think that's an and the extremely way that it changes property value.
1: Up, because we can define, um, obviously there is multiple facets to defining what systemic racism is. But when, we still, when you bring up the fact that are um, African-Americans feeling the effects of systemic racism today, even if you say you've eliminated all the barriers of systemic racism, that is obviously true. But again, in those districts where redlining exists, you do not necessarily have the same families living in those areas when you become wealthy, you typically move out of poor, poor, lower income areas. So to say that we go back this in the 60s, and we go look at those neighborhoods, we're going to find the the same individuals living in those neighborhoods, a lot of times your poorest neighborhoods will have the uh, highest rates of people continually moving through those neighborhoods. So, but
0: the new people living there are still suffering from the harms caused by what made those poor neighborhoods, right? To Which say that they're a racism. poor
1: neighborhood, yes, but you are always going to have a poor neighborhood. Let's say <laughs> you we just, just reach- called them a
0: poor neighborhood. Well, no, I don't think you all are necessarily always going to have a poor neighborhood. I think you could very much argue that you could create a system where you know, all neighborhoods are, are prospering to some degree, even if you have rich neighborhoods, right? I think that it, it's probably, I mean, maybe that's all correct. overly idealistic, but I guess my, no, my, my point is- No, it's not idealistic at all. I, I think right.
1: I think you're correct, but the, I, the point I would make that as long as you have, let's say that you, you, as long as you have a poor neighborhood, it is most likely going to always be the poorest neighborhoods remain the poorest neighborhoods, regardless if they move up through the income brackets, you are gonna have, it's very rare in real estate, to actually have a sh- a-, a geographical shift of a po- the poorest neighborhoods move from one area of a city to another area of the city, and it typically takes sure. takes the form of government intervention. Well, besides in or gentrification or something. Yes, correct. So, but you. I mean, there are large swaths of have, New York City that disagree with you. <laughs> as long as you have those poor neighborhoods, you are always you obviously would have those existing mostly in uh, areas that had historically been redlined. But if we move back to the claims you talked about the um, algorithms um, being systemically Mm -hmm. racist and I disagree because if we saw banks discriminating rather intentionally or unintentionally through these algorithms against black individuals and forcing them to have higher qualifications for the same loans as is claimed, Mm -hmm. then we would see lower default rates
0: among African Americans. For the same, you actually. Loans. I and mean, that is some people point to the study. effectiveness of these algorithms. What's that? No, some people point to the effectiveness of these algorithms by saying the algorithm works because default rates are going down. That's that's an argument that they will make, and and you can argue that um it's it's a kind of vicious confirmation bias within the system that says the algorithm is working because it is discriminating against a group of people who have historically been discriminated against and therefore may actually be at higher risk of defaulting because of a variety of but again
1: we would see the lower default rates if it was if it was bias against african-americans forcing them to have higher qualifications for the same loans that means you would see among that group much lower default rates and you do not see that You you do not see it in data that most of these or not most of these all of these studies that point to disparities or systemic racism in the banking sector omit all of the contributing factors for qualifying for a loan they do not take all those into account they just look at at a couple um, couple data points and compare them, and they are not comparing apples to apples. This is a logical fallacy, or uh, this is a um, faulty logic that's used constantly when comparing data sets, trying to prove systemic racism. They will bring these two groups together and say we are comparing white Americans and Black Americans and call them equal when they only pull two data points out of here. And comparing apples to apples and not using statistical manipula- manipulation is extremely hard. And this is prob- this one point probably takes Mm -hmm. the longest to debunk digging into data digging into studies finding out where they pulled their data set in and what they're calling comparable and there's a i think that i spent the most time digging through studies that were pulling that were not comparing apples to apples and finding out where that is and sometimes the answer Mm -hmm. came down to the fact the very frustrating fact that we do not have enough good data The data we did have certainly took away much, many of the claims of systemic racism, almost nearly all of them, but there still is left a question there. It's very unsatisfying when you do not have enough data in 2020 to either prove or disprove a point because simply it's not collected. It's very, very frustrating.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. It's a, it's a huge problem. And I actually think uh, some people have made some good arguments that the reason these problems persist also is because of systemic racism, that it makes it easier to hide systemic racism when you have inaccurate data. People can point to the absence of data and say, well, we just don't know. Um, so let me let me point to another example of this. Um, and let's, cause I think this is a to me, as far as I can find, the closest anyone has like, like a really good example of someone doing what it seems like you want them to be doing so i'm curious if this still doesn't meet your sort of criteria for being evidence of systemic racism so um you mentioned in your in your video that you don't think that racism is a public health crisis um you're probably familiar that uh there's been a fair bit of evidence that suggests that there are substantial racial disparities within covid pandemic um, outcomes and i'm curious do you feel like that is also not proof of systemic racism
1: no, it's definitely it's definitely not. If you're going to say that um it that your outcomes this is a continued problem that's that's used well, saying that okay. that Go your ahead. outcome uh, if if a disparity exists therefore it has to be systemic racism. Obviously, um this is a this is a logical fallacy where the opposite is true. If systemic racism and white privilege existed and were prevalent obviously disparities would exist. Therefore, if disparities exist, then white privilege and systemic racism must be the cause you have to yep, eliminate you have a to make such fallacy yeah you have to make such a huge jump in reasoning to to believe that and with covid19 there are so many factors contributing to that genetic factors that have been proven in, in studies now because this is obviously being researched very strongly to find out why this is and what they can do to um help mm-hmm. uh, the the hardest hit communities and that that would be huge and if it was simply the answer was uh healthcare providers are racist or that, that their their infrastructure is so poor they're they're hospitals are so bad that they couldn't that they're just killing black people right and left that would be that would be absolutely atrocious and you would have to point that out but that's not what we're finding we're finding that the genetic contributions to how hard a community is hit by COVID 19 are are huge they they, it's a very big deal so you have a lot of people in the african-american community even living in wealthier neighborhoods that are hit much
0: harder and you can't say they have the same here's the thing (laughs) yes I Actually, I sent you a study before we chatted that appears to argue the exact opposite, that appears to use the most up-to-date data to say, if you control for poverty, if you control for geography, if you control for access to healthcare, if you control for all of these factors that are used often as alternative explanations to race, which is a weird argument in itself in that many of those factors, one would argue, are racially related, Um, you still find that People of color, and especially young people of color, are suffering disproportionately in their outcomes. So that seems to be a study, this is on VoxEU, I'll link it in the show notes, that seems to do exactly what you want it to do. It controls for all of the other factors. It isn't just saying any disparity is necessarily proof of race, right? It's showing that it's not proof, it's not evidence of other kinds of uh, causes. Doesn't that meet your criteria?
1: So, I, once again, you obviously sent that to me right before the show. And I had already, I had sure. already looked into the COVID. I, I had dug into systemic racism on healthcare. And that's one of the claims that I had dug into. And so, I guess I, um, a lot of their claims that they, they are putting in there, I'm, I'm disagreeing with. And without um, you know how long it takes to dive into a, stud- to a study deeply, and that's something that that I'm definitely going to dive into more. Um, talking about you know multi generational households and and additionally personal decisions in healthcare. Talking about how um, you interact with your own healthcare providers, how soon you're um, you know culturally like if is there a difference uh-huh. of when they show up and like what is what are they comparing? I will tell you right so, now. So let's say that yeah. one one yeah. point that I want to make is that. Out of all the different areas that I, I addressed, um, I have my video, I focused on systemic racism and policing. I had an additional, I believe, 200 slides going over systemic racism in banking, systemic racism in the judicial system, systemic racism in healthcare. And I think the ju- out of all of them that were the most nuanced and most difficult to dig into, the judicial system was a little frustrating and sometimes nuanced with a lack of data. Healthcare made that seem like child's play trying to compare like to like and get proper data out of the healthcare sector and truly boil down all of the contributing factors I think is the uh-huh. most difficult thing out of all of them. It is the hardest area to dig into and look at. And that's why COVID-19 numbers are so critical. Like we're obviously just unfolding, just starting to crack open COVID-19 and people really breaking it down and understanding. So over the next six months, I think it's going to be critical. It will really highlight um, any issues of systemic racism in our healthcare system okay. and really answer it. And I think it's, <laughs> Cause it is hard to break down all the numbers in healthcare but we got we are getting extremely good data out of the healthcare system for COVID-19 specifically so it's kind of um, will be interesting and, so, and a very good thing to be able to dive deeper into this data but I, I would disagree with their methods and off the bat I'm going to say they are not comparing like to like and I will uh, have but to But you haven't looked at their methods yet. How do you know? Exactly,
0: exactly. And that's what that's what okay, I'm waiting into. Hold I'm going to go on. into it with a hypothesis <laughs> But this is this is a problem, right? Right, but this is this is this seems to me to be a clean example of confirmation bias. It seems like you are going into this study saying you're pretty sure they're wrong and you're gonna find the part of their methodology where it doesn't work. And I mean, that concerns me. And I I guess it seems important to me because you have accused critical race theorists, you have accused social justice folks of lying, misrepresenting, of not using real data. Would you at least acknowledge that this is an example of them doing exactly what you claim to want, whether or not it is perfect? Yes. right. If, you can their, criticize claims, their, if their, their claims, if their claims are factual,
1: then I would say you could say this: this this shows some type of small systemic. But also, racism. but
0: also that they are not they're not just making stuff up here. But they yes, are actually doing research. Correct. Correct. So, like, I mean, my, my point is, into... there's this accusation that they are faking this. And yes, I think there's no faking it going on here. It's just a debate over methods,
1: correct? At best. And I want to dive okay. back into the confirmation bias because I think everybody goes, for anybody to say they don't have confirmation bias, you're absolutely insane. Like, everybody has confirmation bias. I come to this with a point of view from the very beginning that systemic racism was not a major problem in the United States, that it did not exist inherently in the system, is not being perpetuated. And that's essentially, you could call it my hypothesis going in, right? And if and anybody is it else an coming hypo- a into a hypothesis
0: it, or an ideology, sure <laughs> I mean, you like, can call it, an it ideology. Like...
1: But the fact is, even you going into these studies, you are coming into it with sure. some amount of, of bias, and that Absolutely. is why it is so critical to dig into the studies extremely deeply on both sides. And I've obviously gone a little more crazy than most people should or would even have time for. But this this one area where we're talking about with healthcare, uh, like I said, it being extremely nuanced this is a very bad smoking gun for systemic racism in the united states like when we talk about systemic racism desperate outcomes it's extremely important yes but in the context of like a, a conversation Why? i i'm saying as of right now <laughs> i completely agree that it needs to be dived deeper into and continue to be looked at and i and i'm very interested in digging digging into the uh the study that you sent me because i think it's very important but i can't i can't absolutely say that that study is true and everything i was seeing leading up to that was debunking many 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 claims and many other studies on covid 19. so for me to say this one study is now the new smoking gun i i don't have the data to say that so it's it's not my place to be speaking about this specific study right now without me digging into it deeper and finding out what the it may come back the answer may very well come back that this every claim in this study is true. I do not think that would be the case. I am 95% okay. certain that is not the case. But if that's the case, I am willing to go down that path because all that matters is the truth. All that matters is facts and data. And then we can move. I think well, we so create here's a the problem picture.
0: here, actually. I mean, I think this, I think this is actually just a, a problem with debate where we say, well, well uh, you know, we're all going to just decide whatever based on whatever the data says. I'm not opposed to using data, but I see a argumentative issue where, you know, if I present what seems to me as far as I can tell an ironclad study, right, the other person can always just say, Well, I haven't looked at that data, and there's some data to the contrary, and you know, this and, and like, and like, muddy the waters enough that everyone ends up falling back on believing their preferred expert. So, yes, I worry but, but about this sort of fetishizing also, of the data.
1: I mean, we have to be fair here. If I bring, if I send you a study right before sure. the show that shows you that, that sure. makes a bunch of claims, and I say, This study is absolutely ironclad, you know, that that's kind of a, um, an unfair claim. Oh, yeah, and I
0: don't, I don't know that this study is ironclad at all. Yes, I mean, so I mean, that's just what very I'm broadly, saying. I'm there's this a,
1: is extremely yeah. mm-hmm. new. One. Um, when and and diving mm-hmm. into it is uh, like I said, healthcare was the most difficult, and COVID nineteen I think has been the has the most data surrounding it. So it's actually a very good thing for us to dive deeper into these numbers. That's extremely important. But diving uh-huh. into the th- to claims of systemic racism behind banking, I found banking to be a, a, um, one of the easier ones to deal with. Um, policing in the United States was obviously very nuanced. The judicial system was nuanced. But, but again, all of those, I, I came down to actual answers and debunking these claims, starting with the strongest claims and moving your way down is the way to look at this data, not to find a study that, that you agree with and then say, like, oh, wow, that's a smoking gun. I guess I'm just going to believe it.
0: I struggle I guess to rec- to reconcile you saying it's very very nuanced but you've also thoroughly debunked critical race theory and they're a bunch of liars. That those those seem like incompatible claims in my mind. Like I think either you acknowledge these are complicated issues and the critical race theorists are muddying through these hard questions in much the same way that you are and are not liars or bad faith actors or like you have to go- take a different approach in claiming that these things are not really that nuanced.
1: So when, when I say I, I even said in my my video talking about systemic racism, if we're talking about um, disparities in outcomes, I did not completely mm-hmm. d- debunk any. I don't I don't debunk or try to okay. say there aren't disparities in outcomes, but more minorities work in the service and healthcare system than almost any other industry. To say that these minorities themselves are being racist in some way or or racially discriminating. But that's not against... the claim. The
0: claim is not individuals acting racist towards other individuals. The claim is systemic racism.
1: Yes, but in the system, I'm saying that you have more minorities working in that system than, than sure. say let, let's say the judicial system or any of these other systems we're claiming. It's just important to point that out. And then me saying well, right, certain, it, things, <laughs> certain claims coming down to nuance, saying that I don't have an answer on it is not you still have a burden of proof it has to be proved without you know proved without a shadow of a doubt that this exists
0: and when I'm presented with a Without claim- Without a shadow of a doubt or to a reasonable- uh, I mean, like- Yes, to you a know, reasonable- you're gonna, It's amount. impossible to prove causality perfectly in any account. Sure. So like, what we're saying is, do we have decent enough evidence? Now, the thing you pointed out about the people, more people working in these healths, in these sectors, that to me is another example of like a factor that plays into the systemic racism's argument. Like one of the reasons some folks have argued, and there's there's debate about, there's the, the study that I cited controlled for this and still found dif- differences, but one, you know, one piece of of um explanation that folks have pointed to for why there are disparities of outcomes within covid and i think you have to acknowledge the disparities exist even if you think that there are non-racial explanations for them one explanation Definitely. has been that you know people of color um often work in what are we, we're now calling essential worker positions, which, you know, previously were like lower income positions. And so are more at risk of contracting COVID because they were in these lower socioeconomic status positions going into the crisis. So you can, I think there's at least some sense to be made that like all of these factors that have been influenced at in various points in our history by racism have converged to create worse outcomes for people of color in this crisis.
1: But saying that systemic to to say now that that is somehow racism because they're contracting COVID at a higher rate because they're in these industries it is a I think a very unfair jump to say the disparities exist. You say why do they exist, and then you're saying they exist because they're they're in these sectors.
0: Yes. Well, one possible explanation, yes, would be that they are in these sectors where they are exposed to it more, like meatpacking industries.
1: Yes. Correct and and you can't just make that jump now to say that that's now that proves racism in some way. No, that proves that they well, they are, they take up these racism. jobs that are more affected. Like I have the benefit of being in uh, engineering where we can work from home and we are sure. critical because we are um, part of the national security. But at the same time, I had the opportunity to work from home for for much of it if I wanted to. Um, obviously, a lot of my projects I could not work from home due to the nature, and so I, I did. I did go in and work and I interacted with many people throughout the whole entire covid process because of you know how how important we were considered critical and the work that we were doing had to continue on so mm-hmm. okay I, I just think that um to the, saying that our institutions are systemically racist is a is a large claim and it requires a large amount of evidence to prove that there's a very very large burden of proof on people trying to claim that in 2020 the police for the the police in the United States are racist or our judicial system in the United States is racist.
0: Okay. So yeah, I want to talk about the judicial system, but we're getting short on our first episode and I we're going to do a part 2 and I think it'd be better to save diving into the whole data conversation on the criminal justice side for the beginning of part 2. So if it's okay for if, with you, I want to switch gears here just for the last little bit of time that we have and talk a little bit some more about some of the the objections to the specific claims that were raised in your diversity training that you associate with critical race theory that you are critical of. Um, I'm gonna give a list, and I think you gave me three that you thought we could focus in on. So uh, you listed America as chronically systemically racist. Racism is a public health crisis. We talked about those two. Silence is compliance or even silence is violence. Colorblindness is racist the validity of your ideas dependent on the color of your skin and work with your HR to hire on skin color. Um, and you suggest we could work on the last three. So let's start with the color blindness is racist. Um, I think you you and I hopefully can agree that when when you when critical race theorists say that or some version of that we understand they don't mean I don't want to live in Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream world where people are not judged by the color of their skin right they they absolutely I think would argue that they want that the thing they find to be racist is people claiming that they are colorblind right here and now, or the world is already colorblind right here and now in the way that like Stephen Colbert used to always joke about how he doesn't see color because whatever. And then he'd say a really racist thing. Right. (laughs) Um, so, so I'm curious, let me ask you, do you think that you yourself are colorblind? And is that really different in your mind from claiming I have rid myself of all confirmation bias, for example?
1: um yes i i would say that you know i'm i consider myself colorblind and i teach you know my children colorblindness as far as uh, i don't specifically tell them to be to be colorblind or the term colorblindness but you teach them that everybody is equal and and you teach them about you know skin color and how wrong it is to um, be criticizing somebody based on skin color and how damaging that can be to to people and you know even without I, i guess without trying to drill in any ridiculous um, critical race theory or sorry, any, any extreme ideology to my children. You know, we, we've had our children have multiple minority friends that they go and they're playing with somebody and they interact with them the same as they're inter- interacting with I- anybody else. And just teaching them respect, decency and values and to treat everyone the same and that everybody is just as capable. You don't You don't assess somebody through the lens of race and gender when you meet them. So, I definitely consider my myself colorblind and having biases in situations. i have I have many biases that i that I would have in a situation that I go into and none of those revolve around race. There's a lot of things that if I meet somebody for the first time, you know, if you're, if you're gonna meet somebody and somebody's going to, you're gonna be playing, your kids are gonna be playing with their children, you're gonna look at these individuals and kind of, especially when you're playing with them a lot, you're gonna be judging them, determining what kind of values you think they are portraying to your children, what type of values and um, what type of relationship you're gonna have, none of that is based on race. That is entirely based on you as an individual And you Mm -hmm. uh, that's based on your core values and what you can do to benefit somebody and even people's performance on projects at work and things like that. I do not care about anybody's race or gender on a project. I work with brilliant people from all walks of life and race and gender is the least contributing factor in their performance and in their contributions to a team on engineering projects at work. So it is very easy to to achieve the goal of being colorblind, I believe.
0: So I'm trying to understand where your confidence comes from in, in believing that you have achieved this goal. It is it is an admirable goal in my mind, too, to ultimately get to what you are describing. Um, but I think it's also an admirable goal to rid yourself of confirmation bias. And I'm not the least bit confident that I've achieved that. And you seem to think that it's absolutely foolish for someone to claim that they have rid themselves of confirmation bias. So if you're, if you're aware of the fallibility of introspection when it comes yes. to confirmation bias, why are you so certain about your introspection when it comes to your racial biases
1: i i guess i just see confirmation bias as obviously it's you're continually you continually have beliefs that that is a fact of life and anything that comes to um assault those beliefs or call them into question it is just natural as a human to double down confirmation bias i think it is inherent to every single thing you do throughout your day anything that calls into question whereas I do not run around all day, every day, thinking
0: about race.
1: My racial
0: bias don't. But in group out group bias is one of the most foundational biases that, Sorry, like, say has that been again? highly replicated. In group out group biases, broadly speaking, is one of the most highly replicated you know kinds of biases we find in human beings theres there's studies that show that like yes. groups will form in-group out-group biases on a dime well, so, let's like, say that it's why not is without, that not as relevant It's
1: not without effort right I don't I don't think that you can necessarily uh, not teach a child anything about race um, it, oh, I think you absolutely if you did can. not I'm saying that if you did studies. not teach them anything about race and they went into an interaction yeah. with somebody that looks different for maybe the first time you could probably count the minutes until they made fun of something about them right racially. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so okay. I think Sorry. that I you certainly have a base of, uh, core values and, and knowledge and uh, ID, um, uh, values and ethics that you use in these interactions. But after that is established, mm-hmm. it is pretty concrete. After you, after you make those realizations and, and are very sure in who you are and what, how important race is, or, or better yet, how unimportant race is in, in these individuals and how to look at somebody as, as individuals, regardless of who they are, regardless of you know, disabilities, race, gender, whatever it may be, that is much easier to combat. That doesn't even compare anywhere close to confirmation bias that you're constantly battling every day. I don't walk into. I'm just a group. not sure
0: on why you can claim that. I mean, like, I, I understand that you want it to be the case that they're substantially different. I'm just not seeing a salient difference. I between, don't. See like, why being is it difficult. the case that. I
1: don't walk into a group of. If I if I walk into a group be your of African right? like... <laughs> um, Americans that are talking to each other, I don't walk into that group and start going to myself, oh my gosh, this is so weird. This is like um, in. The book White Fragility. She talks about um, walking, walking into these groups of African Americans and her feelings and how how much she struggled with this. And both my wife and I are just um, reading this and just blown away that this is her this is her reaction to this because I'm like this is literally mm-hmm. never my reaction. I, I interacted with you know people from all walks of life and throughout my army experience in the army infantry and everything like that and I don't go into these interactions feeling uncomfortable. Even going into these interactions, sometimes you walk in there and they're talking about things in a culturally different way. And that's not a bad thing, Mm -hmm. that's a beneficial thing. You need to, I guess, maybe change the way you're looking at these interactions and changing the way you're looking at these individuals because them talking in a different way and communicating Mm -hmm. is like extremely, um, I guess, uh, interesting and unique. And, And when you have conversations with individuals that are diverse, it can bring very interesting perspectives on things. Like, I, I never shy away from very controversial conversations in these group settings. A lot of people feel very uncomfortable talking about this stuff, but this is the best place for you to talk about things where you're going to vehemently disagree and have you know um, strong feelings being brought up on one side or the other because this is where you're yeah. getting some very interesting, unique perspectives where they may have came, come from a different walk of life from you. So I don't... I so think... you think
0: that it's actually valuable to get different perspectives from different racial backgrounds? Yes, depending on the Do you think that like, you subject. can learn different things from different people from different racial backgrounds? Oh, definitely. I, I ask because you, you criticized the um, the, the videos in your video, you criticize them for suggesting that we should encourage the hiring of more people of color as educators, for example, in communities where a lot of the students are people of color. Can you maybe at least understand where that principle was now coming from in the sense of like thinking that there could be some value in them having an experience of something other than all white teachers? Um.
1: Yeah. So uh, let's say I can see the value. I'm going to come back to this one second. But first I, I want to say that race is not the biggest factor in your um, having a diverse point of view and getting like your culture plays a huge factor. I've, I've worked with, you know, British soldiers, Canadian soldiers. I've worked with soldiers in the Middle East. You talk to different cultural backgrounds. And obviously there's many people sure. that are African American that come from a very similar cultural background to myself. You know, me talking to them, I don't get a very sure. diverse view I'm not view saying that them. any of
0: these groups are monoliths at all. I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't no. suggest that. I was simply pointing out that, like, uh, it does seem like there are cases where, you know, the source of the information can but have some effect. I want to point out. And, and like, relevance.
1: Let's, let's bring this back to um, uh, a lot of times it's brought up that in, in engineering, you, you diversity of a group benefits the outcome. Like, you get more a uh, better mm-hmm. product in the end when you diversify the group. And these studies Mm -hmm. a lot of times are pointed to saying this is why we need affirmative action, right? This is benefiting the company.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I don't care if it benefits the company. Like, let's go ahead and say, just for the sake of argument, this is obviously ridiculous, but let's say there's a study that comes out that's extremely reputable that says white male groups and all white male engineering team of, you know, they assess them and the all white male team is vastly more effective for whatever reason, 50% more productive because of that does that mean all of a sudden we now need to start looking and digging into um, making our teams <laughs> looking at our teams making the all white males as much as we can in engineering?
0: That is a ridiculous okay. so you prioritize the ethics over the outcome in that situation exactly
1: it, it is racial discrimination okay. no matter how great. you cut it no matter how you look at it and you may like the outcome <laughs> I don't care if you like the outcome if the input is racial discrimination then that is absolutely wrong wherever it is practiced and that's why we have made it illegal in the United States in so many different ways just because you have okay. a beneficial outcome does not mean you get to be racist and that racism me, flows
0: um... both directions. Let me let me ask you one more question, and then we'll, we'll take a break, and we can come back for our part two. Just to wrap up this this confirmation bias conversation, um, you you put a lot of weight on data, it seems like, and on studies. You you are willing to acknowledge that like they may have information that your introspection is failing to achieve. If you really did see a genuinely ironclad study, or let, let's say a meta-analysis, not just one study, but like a study of studies that found that you really can't be colorblind, like you've there's just there's really strong evidence that you can get better at it but you can never fully rid yourself of these biases would that soften your confidence about your own personal (laughs) colorblindness
1: um i i guess i would have to um uh if if absolutely they proved it to me through data and that I, I agreed with th- their assessment and could see that. I, I certainly think a lot of people fail to be colorblind. I'm not saying that every single person is, is perfect. And I think something like critical race theory takes a, an idea like colorblind, somebody that considers themselves colorblind, it stabs a wedge in that and absolutely destroys that colorblindness they might've had. We even had individuals in the group hmm. um, at Sandia. I did a video following up. Somebody emailed me talking about their team cohesion And an individual on the group, an African American on the group, come out and had talked about all these good critical race theories trainings coming out, and these books that they needed to read, and were like asking people pointed questions, and it absolutely destroyed any amount of colorblindness that was on that team, and that team has been has been. greatly reduced in their capacity to work together because people do not even want to be in a, in a room alone with this individual because they're scared that they could possibly claim being racist. It's very uncomfortable. They're never going to have a conversation. from a woman
0: bringing up issues about sexual harassment and then, men saying they don't want to be in a room alone with her because they're afraid of being accused of sexual harassment.
1: You could say that, and there has been, um, I mean, depending on the situation, if I was at work and somebody came up and that happened, right? My first question is obviously like, uh, this guy's saying it didn't happen. Is that true? What's the whole story? And then if, there's, if that's called into question, that's going to be a natural human reaction to that. If this, uh, if they were just alone in a room and this, you know, it's somebody that I knew personally— we know false claims of that happen um from time to time and if that's if if that's okay, what i so believe or i believe it's a possibility, sexual harassment
0: training what's that i mean like sexual harassment training is controversial it could cause these kinds of conflicts in much the same way that critical race theory can should we get rid of like sexual harassment training and tell people that they shouldn't talk about those kinds of issues I mean,
1: I'm at at work. I work around females. I work in rooms sometimes alone with only me me and another female. And it is not an issue. It's not an issue. Well, not an issue for you. It's a massive issue for lots of other people. I'm saying
0: the way that it is conducted- Lots of conservatives who criticize sexual harassment training. Like, look at the Me Too situation, right? Like, there was a lot of pushback to Me Too. It's not- I mean, yes. I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it is clearly – it is, in my mind, equally as controversial as the critical race theory stuff. It has just as much pushback largely from the same groups of people. It could so be like... conducted in a
1: way that's just as controversial. Yes, I could go in there and I, I've even you know, heard of different uh, sexual harassment trainings that are absolutely terrible and they're very divisive. And if you create a culture mm-hmm. where somebody can be accused of sexual harassment and without evidence completely lose their job, if that was happening at my own company – um like i've heard it happening at other companies yes i would make sure that i was not in the room alone with another female that is just you know beneficial to me because you have situations where somebody had been upset about another comment someone made maybe even politically they hear me talking about a subject especially you know now that i've that i'm more of a i I guess a public figure in the eyes of people at sandia and people know what i believe so if if i believe it's possible that somebody is going to make those false claims of course i'm going to try to protect myself but Uh, the critical race theory training coming back to that it is very damaging like there is a way that we can we can perform uh diversity trainings that are very beneficial and very cohesive and in the past our company has that's why I know it works we have had you know extremely strong teams that have been working for a very long time and even this team that I was emailed about where the where the team has broken down very recently in the past, they have been performing amazingly together. And this individual would worked with, you know, multiple different African-Americans, but now it's like there's a, they, they just, um, Sandia National Laboratories just put an elephant in the room that was never there before. And regardless of what their intentions are or what the perception, you can call the perceptions of these individuals right or wrong, you have taken any amount of, you have taken any amount of colorblindness that they had and absolutely destroyed it. It's extremely uncomfortable to be in a room with somebody if you think that they they or better yet you know they believe you are a white supremacist and part of the um system that is keeping them down. Critical race theory dictates that you must admit your complicity in a system of race and act on that assumption. That that is okay, so, obviously going to yeah. tear teams apart.
0: Uh, so I am I will say somewhat sympathetic to, I mean, again, coming back to, you know, if we're talking about, well, I'm want to say this, I am sympathetic to the way that, especially the framing of critical race theory by some of the more famous proponents, um, feels less productive in addressing these kinds of issues. I don't think that's indicative of all of critical race theory, but I do think you're right that, um... There are absolutely situations happening in the world right now where attempts to address this, even well-meaning attempts to address this, are going poorly in a variety of ways, and we shouldn't we shouldn't discount those cases all as you know racists fighting back against anti-racism or something like that, right? So I, I'm I'm sympathetic to your concerns there. I wanna I wanna give us a pause here, um, and then we can come back and talk about maybe the criminal justice some more and. Uh, the policies for addressing these issues does that sound good
1: that sounds good we can talk a little about the um executive order by donald trump just signed Mm -hmm. this week too as well
0: yeah absolutely sounds great so uh we will see all y'all folks back next week for the the conclusion as a human i was ill-equipped to thank you but as myself you have my everlasting gratitude as always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. We've got quite a few new patrons recently, so I'd like to thank Rambo Billy, Matthew Brown, former internet spaceship politician, Jess Abels, Luis Fernando Rodriguez, Nestor Buen, Intellectual Darkwave, Curdy, Rinthrin, uh, and Grant Godso. And as always, thanks to our $20 tier Duke patrons, BlackNonBelievers.com, 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 Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, and our newest $20 patron, Patrick, thank you very much. And most of all, all of the void thanks to our top tier patrons, Dave Maslich, the creepy eyes that stare at me from the void and our newest top patron big easy blasphemy thank you all so much if you'd like to support the show please subscribe and leave us a five star rating and a review on podcast apps follow us on twitter at etv pod and if you notice a small void growing within you consider supporting us financially at patreon.com embrace the void just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, and I cannot stress this enough, you are the void, and the void is you.